suffering. Well, there's a topic no one actually wants to deal with, but that is going to be the topic for today. We're going to play for you a message from a conference recently, and that will be coming to you today on The Wrap Report. Welcome to The Wrap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications This is the Ministry of Striving for Eternity and the Christian Podcast Community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. All righty. Well, like I said, we had a conference recently. You've probably heard about it if you are a regular listener called the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. There's a lot of good things here to help folks in their own suffering or in helping others. And first up was Pastor Frank Mullis. Left some of the introduction in here so you can hear how we introduced him, a little bit about himself. But I hope that this message will be a blessing to you. We will try to put the rest of the messages from the conference out here. We may do those as bonus episodes so that they're not just all preaching. Uh, But we do want you to be blessed by these messages. So I hope you enjoy them. You know, this is this is a little bit different. Not I don't know of any conferences that deal with the topic of suffering. Um, As I discovered and with this, it's also something that is very interesting. We realized if you say we're going to do a conference dealing with the issues of suffering, no one wants to come. And I was talking to someone earlier today. I said, yeah, it was like we used to have these CDs from Todd Friel dealing with pornography. And we used to make them available for free. We take Just take one. We get one or two that people would be, t- that would they take. And so what ended up happening was I said, take one for a friend of yours. They all went. And I realized the problem. No one wants to be seen taking it. It's like, you say you're going to a conference on suffering. Well, okay, so we started realizing, no, we really should have said, like, this is for you to help someone else. Because <laughs> your friends need it, not you, obviously. Um, but this is something that we, we came up with as an idea because so few people are dealing with this topic. And we also realized that, well, basically all of us struggle in one way or another. Uh, you're going to hear... Um, from different people that struggle in different ways. And you're going to hear from speakers who will tell you uh, that they don't ever want to do this again. See, it's, when you do a conference, you have a topic. I, I was asked to do a, at a conference. I was asked to talk on perseverance, and I was like, please, no. Because I, I knew that meant that coming up, leading up to the conference, I was going to have to be persevering for something. God teaches us through experience. Several of our speakers have had different experiences some on the higher scale worse than others i just suffered with a cold it's not a big deal i feel much better hanging around with like frank and colleen and what they put up with um but uh but we all struggle in different ways okay the reality is none of you know my struggles and my suffering and i don't know any of yours i really can't i can't identify exactly with yours and you can't identify exactly with mine we're hoping that this conference will be something that will give, it's not going to answer everything that could be answered, but we hope that it's something that will help you in wherever you're at, whatever God would have, either now or in the future, because we don't know when struggles may come our way and God may have different ways of testing us in, in different means. Um, this conference is being put on by Striving for Eternity. 
the church here, Chinese American Bible Church, was gracious enough to to open their doors for us. So my request is to remember that uh, they are going to have services on Sunday. So let's keep it as as clean and easy for them to have services by Sunday as possible. Um, and uh, so. Um, with that, let me real quick for those who may not be familiar with Striving for Eternity and some of the speakers. Striving for Eternity is a discipling ministry, um, and we do that in a lot of different ways. We have our online academy. Uh, you can go to YouTube, watch our classes for free. That's how we make our money. Uh, wait, something didn't work right there. Yeah, um, clearly we don't have a good business model. Uh, but what we what we do is we we try to do discipling. We we do courses online. We do seminars like. You know, going into churches, doing Bible interpretation made easy. Uh, we do evangelism. We do apologetics, church history, theology. Uh, we even have, as you're going to hear in a minute from our first speaker, who is one of Georgia's leading experts when it comes to sexual abusers. So we go into churches. And a shocking thing, if any of you think that, oh, our church doesn't need that, we do background checks. Uh, how many How many people are first-time offenders? 90% of people who, are, who get caught are first-time offenders, which means your background checks are basically doing nothing. It's scary, but you have to know how to identify people that are preying on, on children and different people. So, um, so th- these are some of the seminars we do. Then we do conferences like this. We do our equipped conferences, which is really to help people get equipped to evangelize. Uh, and now the most recent thing we've done is podcasting. We have the... We, we run the, Christ, the uh, Christian podcast community. Uh, I'm the executive director in the back is Colleen Sharp from Theology Gals, and she's the administrator. Um, and so we do a lot of discipling with podcasting. Why? That's the next medium that is really blowing up. And you're going to, you know, I'm going to talk about some different podcasts. We're going to highlight different ones, but uh, it is the next medium. And so if you want to check out the Christian podcast community. It's actually a podcast itself, and we have all the podcasts on there that are part of the community. So if you want one podcast that gives you everything, that's it. You'll get a whole lot of stuff. Um, and there's some things that just go on there, like our awards at the end of the year and maybe different things throughout the year. But with that aside, that's what Striving Fraternity is about. I'm going to introduce our first speaker who is, uh, you know, so, some people actually Justin Peters asked why I wasn't speaking, because I'm kind of known as the face of Striving Fraternity, and we're trying to change that. And so the first speaker is one of our other speakers, Frank Mullis. We designed this, this conference really about around his expertise. We have another speaker, Anthony, Anthony Silvestro. He's not here because, well, when you have three speakers, and I think I got called for an event, and when I wasn't available, Frank got called, and he wasn't available because we're both here. So Anthony got called, <laughs> and he's out in Pennsylvania speaking right now at a, a, a t- basically doing an, uh, an apologetics training uh, with a whole bunch of college students. They're going onto campuses during the day, and he's training them at night. And they're actually using their spring break to evangelize other campuses that are not on spring break. Neat idea. So Pastor Frank Mullis, his introduction takes a while because he does too many things. He's a pastor of, of Devereaux Baptist Church in Georgia. Uh, he's also... Not only a full-time pastor, he's a full-time counselor. Uh, he's, like I said, one of Georgia's leading experts when it comes to sexual offenders. How many sexual offenders do you counsel, like a month? Huh? Two hundred. 
So if you want someone to pray, you, if, I mean, just think about listening and counseling 200 sexual offenders a month and thinking like, you got to go home and you have four daughters. Okay, so <laughs> not only that, like if that's not enough full-time jobs, he, he, you don't want to pick a fight with him because he also runs the Milledgeville uh, Mixed Martial Arts Academy. Um, he's a black belt in karate and uh, jiu-jitsu. I can tell you for a fact, you don't want to roll with him. I've been on the losing side of that. <clears throat> I could tell you it's a bad thing. <laughs> but uh, Pastor Mullis has been a real blessing to our ministry. Um, he's got a lot of wealth of knowledge. And I think that what he's going to bring to you guys is not only a theological view of suffering and how to deal with it, but a very practical one and one with many years of counseling. So with that, I'll ask if Pastor Mullis wants to come on up. So the real reason I'm here is so I can say I spoke with Justin Peters at a conference. That's really the really the main reason. Uh, so Andrew said, uh, hey, how would you like to speak to Justin with Justin Peters? And I was like, oh, that'd be great. What's the topic? He said, suffering. So Justin asked me, he said, Frank, it's been about a year and a half since we've seen each other. What's been going on? Well, I've had about uh, 12 funerals, including two of my best friends. Uh, one died of ALS, one of uh, cancer. Uh, my grandmother passed away, two of my uncles. Uh, a year ago, my counseling supervisor, who uh, was my mentor through uh, dealing with the sex offenders, uh, she was killed in a tragic car accident, uh, leaving group one night. It was that night that I, next morning when I found out, I pretty much had a emotional breakdown because of dealing I really hadn't dealt with any death as a pastor you know what it's like you you put it all inside and just keep going and so um, even more so recently I've been dealing with some other personal issues I had a member of my family physically assaulted and then had to deal with a friend who I've had to deal with legal issues so it's been a build-up to suffering this uh, last couple of weeks so um, it was 1996 that I went to seminary, and I thought I was going to be a counselor, a youth minister. Sounded like a pretty, uh, pretty way to go. Thought, hmm, sounds pretty good. About three or four years into youth ministry, I decided I couldn't relate to youth anymore, so I decided I was going to go into the pastorate. As a new pastor, I had spoken at my grandfather's, both my grandfather's uh, funerals, but hadn't preached a funeral yet. Got a phone call from uh, one of my church members and said that uh, one of the boys in the church had drowned. So I immediately called the hospital to speak to their grandfather. Two of the boys had drowned. They had three sons. The oldest son and the youngest son had gone down to the lake where near where they lived, and they were riding their bicycles on the dock. The youngest uh, boy fell off the end of the dock on his bicycle. His brother jumped in after him. Their mother and father got to looking for them, and it turns out that their dad was a Navy rescue diver. He immediately went to the lake, figuring that's what happened. He jumped in, uh, pulled out uh, his oldest son, proceeded to do CPR. He came to, and then he expired. He went in and pulled out his other son. So 
they had left the uh, hospital, the parents and all, and I got to the house. And uh, I had called my wife. I said, you need to come on home. I need you to go with me. This is going to be tough. So I got to the house. We walked up to the door. The mom comes running out. And she looked at me, and as a pastor, of course, in seminary, you think you're going to have the right words to say. What are you going to say? And these words come out of her mouth. Why did God take my two sons? And I looked at her with all my theological knowledge, and I said this. I don't know. Don't know. That's the question, isn't it? Why am I suffering? That is the theological question of why we hear. Why does God allow me to suffer that's a question we hear as a pastor all the time when death grief trials tribulations what whatever comes into your congregation's life you want to be the one there to be able to answer that question why does god allow me to suffer now we ask that question as uh, the ancient question it's it's there but it's a modern one we know that just like she was asking me she wanted to know we we want to have answers it's, it's on the street as andrew he goes uh, we go out times there to Union Square there in New York. As he goes, that question always comes up. I'm sure you have friends. 9-11 happened. That was one of the number one questions. How in the world can God do this? The Muslim there, crisis that happened there in uh, New Zealand today, I'm sure that question's coming up. How can God? But you know what? The Muslims are having to deal with that question just as much with their God, right? So why is it? that the problem of reconciling an all-powerful, all-loving God with suffering that clearly exists in one of the main objections to Christianity. Why is that? Because it's a tough one. Let's just be honest. We deal with it. We struggle. It's Christians. Something comes into our life, God, why? You know, Job, the last half of the book of Job was Job asking questions. Right? We, we, we ask that. They, hey, Jesus, that, that tower that fell on all those people, Oh, Jesus Jesus gave a, a quick answer, did he not? Uh, better repent before it happens to you. I mean, that was that's the simple. That, I mean, Jesus just gave, that was his theodicy right there, right? Um, doesn't work well with our friends, though, does it? Um, I'll try to clarify the questions a little bit, provide some understanding, and make some comparisons of some other explanations. Um, I'm not the end-all, be-all of this. I deal, as Andrew uh, dealt with, I deal with a lot of... Um, a lot of suffering. 200 sex offenders means I have to deal with 200 plus victims. Most sex offenders have 12 or plus victims before they really get to us. Um, and I read a lot of the victim statements and see a lot of, of the horrors. Um, and there's a lot of depravity and sin and suffering that um, other people experience on the other end of the people I counsel. Um, but not only that, the people that I counsel, their childhoods are full of that same type of suffering uh, as well. And so we deal with this in all elements, whether it's uh, someone that we look at as, as a depraved person that, well, they have their suffering too, right? And then the victims who have suffering, and we have ours, you know, Andrew's cold for, to him. That's, that's pretty severe, right? It's a man cold. It's got to be terrible, right? So... This is what helps me, and it may help you when dealing with suffering, theology matters. And, and I, I want to, this is my premise of this whole talk, if you want to understand that. Your theology, your theology will determine how you suffer. Okay? So just understand, 
your theology, the depth of your theology will determine how you suffer. So many have a poor theology of suffering. Why? Because you're not supposed to suffer. This is your best life now. You're supposed to be wealthy. You're supposed to be healthy. This is the poor theology, right? So these people who are expecting their best life now, uh, they're expecting to be healthy and wealthy, and they can't figure out why in the world that faith healers wear glasses, right? <laughs> and why Justin's never brought up in, on the stage at Benny Hinn's conference, right? This is it. Don't you love the first law? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what I was taught as a Southern Baptist growing up. That was one of the spiritual laws. But God may not have a wonderful plan for your life. That's the problem. Justin and I were talking about that. God's plan may not be wonderful for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I love this meme. Some restrictions do apply. Especially if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire, right? Um, that's not what the Bible says. I, I can't find it in the life of Stephen. As you know, if you listen to the podcast with with Justin, you can't find it in the life of Paul. You can't find it in the life of Stephen. Any of the apostles, you know, even even John there. At the end, he was exiled. You know, so what does the Bible say? It's not what the Bible says. Is is this? Look. As believers, we must develop a sound theology of suffering. That's it. As a believer, you have to develop your theology of suffering. Pause on that for a minute and think, what is your theology of suffering? What, what, what have you developed as your theology of suffering? Is it based on Joe Olstein? Is it based on the NAR? I mean, what is it based on? What has been your theological understanding of suffering throughout your life? And what was your parents' understanding of suffering? How did they deal with suffering? And I promise you, you probably deal with problems very much in the same way they did. That's, how, that's where we learn. If your church didn't teach much on suffering, maybe you didn't develop a sound theology of suffering. It's my favorite peanuts little thing there. You know, it's amazing what sound theology will do, right? First Thessalonians 4.15, this is the verse I like to go to when I preach funerals. But we do not want you to be uninformed, dot, dot, dot there, that you may not grieve what? As others do. What, who are the others? He's speaking to believers. So first and foremost, your theology of suffering means you should not react the same way as lost people do if you're a believer when suffering enters your life. That's what Paul's telling you. What does he mean? I don't want you to be uninformed. So in other words, go to the Scripture when suffering comes into your life and look and see what Scripture has to say about what you're dealing with when you're going through suffering. So that you don't grieve as others who have what? No hope. Now, the question is, where is the hope? It's future glory. 
I mean, our hope as Christians are in future glory, not in the now and now, right? That, that's, that's the problem with most suffering, is that we assume that this is it. This is our best life now. And as many have said, if this is your best life now, you're probably going to hell. Right? So what is a sound theology of suffering? There's four premises about suffering that you as a Christian need to um, need to grasp, need to hold on to, need to memorize. And the scriptures surrounding this, and I'm giving you a couple of simple scriptures. There, there are several. Obviously, they could fit what I'm about to give you. Why? Why these four premises? Because this is what atheists are going to come at you with when they attack the character of God. The first premise is one, as we said growing up, God is great. Remember that prayer? God is great. God is good. Well, the first one is, look, God is great. He's all-powerful. Omnipotent, as we call it in seminary. Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable, and that's coming from Job. Why the Job is the book of suffering, right? So first premise is to understand that God is great. That has a lot of theological implications. So first and foremost, to understand the omnipotence and the greatness of God. You understand who God is and who you're not. Really helps us understand premise one. Notice there, this is a presuppositional argument I'm making here. I'm starting with Scripture. If you have Scripture as your foundation and you believe that Scripture is not only inerrant and infallible, but is sufficient... Uh, you like to use that term sufficient because that is the weakness in the Southern Baptist Convention now. Right? It is sufficient. You hold on to these verses and grasp them and you put them in your heart and grasp them so that your mind has them. Number two, God knows it all. From beginning to the end. Great is our Lord. Notice that Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord. So it goes back to the greatness of God. And abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He knows. So what you don't know about your suffering, God knows. You understand how that, that affects your suffering? God knows what you are going through. And as a Calvinist, He ordained it in such a way. Right? But he knows. He's ever present. Premise three. God is good. And I'm not. So whatever I may think about suffering, God is good. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, of course, Jesus is not denying he's not God there, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, God is good. The goodness of God. Wrap yourself around the goodness of God, even in your suffering. Because I promise you, it can get worse. It can. Ask Job. It got worse. Everything was going great for Peter until, I'm sorry, uh, everything was going great for Stephen until Paul showed up. <laughs> right? You understand? 
things go well for a while and it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get better. Things could get worse. But trust God and His goodness. Premise 4. God is not the author of evil. Let no one say when I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness. So why is it that we, first of all, like my church member, why did God? I didn't know. Now, there are things as a pastor you don't ever say. You just don't to people in your congregation in regards to some things that happen in tragedies. You do tell your children. So the two young boys, they were told by their mom and dad not to go to the lake that morning. They had gone a couple times before down and they were riding their bikes to see how close they could get to the edge before they would topple in. So mom and dad had told them not to go to the lake that morning. They disobeyed their mom and dad they went to the lake, and one of them drowned. Now, theologically, I could have said to the mom, well, let me explain to you why they died, for the wages of sin is death. One of the commandments says that you are to obey your mother and father and that your life will be long upon the earth if you do so. And obviously, your children disobeyed you, and their life was ended shortly. And Scripture came to pass. That wouldn't have helped mom that day. I would have been packing my bags and on my way back to Georgia, Right? But I promise you, my children have heard that story about look what happens, what can happen if you disobey mom and dad when they tell you not to go down to the lake. Right? But notice she didn't immediately think about the sinfulness of her children that day. The first person she attacked was God. Why did God? 9-11, why did God? Every other bad thing in the world that happens is why is it God's character? And why in the world do atheists attack God's character if there's no God? Right? So it's, it's always about God. That's why? Because they know there's a God. It's written on his hearts. Romans tells us that. They know, but they want to attack his character. But we as Christians, you understand what God's character is through these four premises, and your view of suffering will change. Develop a strong understanding of theology proper and who God is. So with these sound truths locked in our hearts, let's continue on and look at this in a little bit more of a theological way. The term you need to know as you mature as a Christian is the term theodicy. Okay? The term theodicy, you will not learn that term unless you study theology or go to seminary. It's just the, it's the problem of evil, people. That's what it is. We seminarians like to use these big words to make us look smart after all that money we spent. It's defending God's goodness in light of the evil and suffering in this life. Look, even for the Christian, we know. You wouldn't be here if you understood and had a... <laughs> maybe you're just curious. I don't know. But we're here for this reason to understand it a little bit more. So even for the believing Christian, there's no greater test of our faith than when we go through when we suffer. So why does God allow His creatures and even his children, to suffer. 
Well, as we come to this, let's define evil. There seems to be two types of evil in the world. That is moral evil, and that's the evil we as human beings do. It originates cruel and unjust, vicious, pervasive thoughts and deeds. Then we have, of course, natural evil. That's the evil that originates, as we call in the insurance business, right? They call it the acts of God. Earthquakes, storms, droughts, tornadoes, etc. Why in the world are these two types of evil exist? Well, let's talk about moral evil. Evil caused by human beings, for example, I deal with these people. Every one of them you see up there, I deal with on a weekly basis. I have murderers, I have liars, I have thieves, I have greedy and dishonest people, along with rapists and child molesters and and child pornographers and um, sex slave traffickers that I deal with on a weekly basis. I see moral evil constantly. I deal with moral evil constantly. It's not, it's not, we turn on the TV, we see moral evil. It's not like, it's hard for us to understand moral evil. This one is the natural evil we deal with, is the bad weather. Now, if you've ever hydroplaned and almost died like I did in years ago, had to do some counseling for that, by the way. Uh, animal attacks, famine, disease, birth defects, disabilities, all of these things are natural evil. And so on both sides of the table, we are constantly inundated as Christians with moral evil. When someone does something to a member of your family or your congregation's family, you deal with it. Or when the tornado hits, and as we as Christians, we go and do uh, relief and things like that. So we're, we're on both sides of the picture, and we see both sides of it. And guess what? It's not any different. They still attack God. So the question is, is why does God? Why does God? It's an old question, Epicurious. Life is good. Well, if that's the way life is supposed to be, something's quite wrong. <laughs> Right? Because it doesn't seem to be that way. But look, if you live a life, if you live a life in the belief that your mindset, your presupposition is life is supposed to be good. This is my best life now. When something tragic comes into your life, you are going to feel really bad. Because this is what Epicurus thought. Life was supposed to be good. So when bad things happen, he attacked, look, not the God of the Bible, just some God. This is the question. Notice what they attack. They attack God's power, His greatness. They attack His goodness. Then why in the world is there evil? God is so great and God is so good, why in the world is there evil? That's Epicurus. Then there's Leibniz. You ever read Voltaire, Rape of the Lock, if I remember correctly? There was this, um, can't remember the doctor's name in, in the book. You think of it, throw it at me. But Leibniz made fun of him all through his book. Or I'm, or I'm sorry, Voltaire made fun of Leibniz all through the book with this doctor. So everywhere this doctor went, something bad happened and the doctor would say, 
hey, this is the best of all possible worlds. You know, he gets syphilis, his nose falls off. You know, there's a flood, the Lisbon flood comes in, and oh, it's the best of all possible worlds. And so that's his. Well, if this is the best of all possible worlds, and what in the world? God must not be all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good because there's bad things in this world. God could have done better. Charles Darwin, same thing. It's a revolt to the understanding that God would allow evil. David Hume takes the same question. If he's willing to prevent it, if he's not able, then he's not omnipotent, or he is impotent, basically. If he is able but not willing, then he is malevolent. If he is both and willing, then he's just plain out. Why in the world is there evil? It's the same question. It's an attack on the character of God by all the philosophers, by all the atheists. Hans Kuhn, he says the same thing about Auschwitz. What about Hitler? (laughs) God, but what, what about Hitler? Look, problem of evil in philosophy returns, basically refers to the argument from evil against the existence of God, his three characteristics, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. That's it. That's the basis of every attack that you're going to come across as a believer. Uh, when someone comes up to you and they ask you these questions, they're going to attack these three areas of the nature and character of God. So theologically, this is where you need to spend time when you deal with suffering is learn as much as you can about what Scripture has to say about the omnipotence of God, the knowledge of God, and the goodness of God. And the more you develop a theological understanding of the character of God, the more you will learn to know what God does and what God does not do. So there are three versions of the problem of evil put forth basically by atheists and by the philosophers. The first one is this, all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God, evil exists. In other words, if there's a God, why is there bad? Well, Scripture explains that in the very beginning. So why does the world attack Genesis first? Why do we go from you know the primary idea of creation and now evolution is the primary thing? And Anthony Silvestro, in his seminars, he will tell you exactly why the book of Genesis is one of the most attacked books in all of the Bible. Because most everything that we know about God and man starts out there. And it explains exactly why. So the problem of evil, that blue didn't show up too well, but version 2, all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God, large amounts, extreme and horrendous kinds of perplexing distributions of evil exist. So they start pointing out, what about this? What about? So they give you situational ethics. That's what situational ethics are. And those are the ones that confound us. Well, what about this in this circumstance? And postmodernism has moved from the idea of logic to our feelings. This brother and I were talking about feelings, right? If I can get you to feel instead of think, you're more likely to side with me. 
take you away from the logic of Scripture. I'm writing a book called God Doesn't Care How You Feel. It'll be out next year. Um, no, I, I mean, it's, He cares about your thinking and how you think and logically thinking through. Look, suffering makes us feel. It makes us feel. And we push those thoughts away. It's hard for us to think when we feel bad. When we're hurting. It's hard for us to think logically. I dealt with something this week that I never thought I would have to deal with. And I literally had to call several friends of mine and ask them if I was crazy. A couple of them said you were crazy to start with. But in reality, I was thinking and not feeling. That's why I was dealing with it differently than they were. They couldn't understand why I was angry, why I was not wrathful. But they were, because they were feeling it. They didn't think about it in the same way I did. And that's why when we deal with evil in this world and we deal with problems and we deal with circumstances, if we get on that feeling level, it's very easy to get angry at God. Get mad at God. God, you're, you're the reason I'm here. Well, on a providential level, yes, that's true. And I'm not saying you can't question God. This has been one of the debates I've been having with people this week is, look, Job questioned God, did he not? David questioned God, did he not? Moses questioned God, did he not? They weren't tempting God. Hey, they, you're right, they questioned Jesus too. It didn't seem like God got angry. It seemed like God kind of began to show them that He was God. Be careful that your questioning doesn't turn into tempting or become angry toward God. So there's three versions. Again, version three, all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God. Gratuitous and pointless evil exists. Yes. I have counseled people. Why would you do it? Because I could. Because I wanted to. Because they were there. I don't know why. Just did it. It's tough. I tell you, random acts of violence are a lot worse for us to comprehend than we understand. And I promise you, I've dealt with, for, this is 15, starting 15 years in October will be that I've dealt with this uh, uh, type of counseling I've done. Um, and I know more than I did, but I don't know everything. And I'm still deemed an expert in court, <laughs> only because I know more than the judge most of the time. Or more than their lawyer most of the time, but but it, there's just some things you cannot explain about human behavior. It's very unpredictable. All of our behavior is unpredictable because there's something within us called sin. So here's the challenge we face as Christians: an all-powerful, all-good, all-loving, all-knowing God exists. Evil exists. Extreme and horrendous evil exists, and gratuitous, pointless evil exists. So, let's talk about some of the cheap solutions that people like to give. Philosophy likes to give us some cheap solutions. Religions like to give us cheap solutions. So, here, here's one. 
um, the Christian science gives us this evil is an illusion. Uh, Mary Baker Eady, she's still dead. Jim Henson, he's still dead. Evil's not real, it's an illusion. Reality proves this to be false. <laughs> it really does. Because you know why? Lost people use the term evil. Atheists like to use the term evil. They call it the problem of evil. I love how Sproul responds, it's the problem of good. It's easy to figure out why there's evil, but why is there good? Another cheap solution. This is a strange one. God hears the whole sympathy and is good and harmonious. We only hear a few few of the sounds. We're so far removed from hearing the symphony, we don't really understand it. What good is your conscience? What good is your conscience? Scripture says God's ways are higher than our ways. That's why there's evil. We, you know, it's true. What seems like evil is not really evil because God's hands in it. It's not what Scripture says. We like to take that verse in Romans: "All things work together for good," and we like to make that into evil is good. Woe to those who call evil good. Right? We are in His image and we are in His likeness and we understand the difference between good and evil. We do. We are moral creatures. We know. It's written on our hearts. Romans 1 says so. They suppress it in their unrighteousness. All's well that ends well. Okay, sera, sera. It'll work out in the end. So, I was teaching school several years ago, and I was talking to world religion class, and one of my students says, went through all these things, and it's made me the person I am. I said, oh, that's wonderful. Too bad you weren't beaten and you know all terrible things happened to you. You know, along the way, you probably wouldn't think so much about that. Um, we we can't have an ethic at all well end well as Christians. It's not going to work. Future good, justifying brutal murders, premature deaths, things of that nature. We can we can try to try to put that into a perspective. We can even rationalize abortion and those types of things because it lowered the crime rate. This is my favorite one. The devil made me do it. I hear that a lot in group. The angels are responsible. The devil made me do it. Didn't God make them? And aren't they subject to God's power too? So you still stuck with that. Love Martin Luther's line. He's the guy. He's God's devil, right? Ask Job. And I say this. This is my quote. The devil gets blamed for a lot of stuff he didn't do. 
because we are depraved. A lot of evil rise from human actions, so God should not be blamed. Did not God make Hitler, Stalin, and your scripture talking about raising up the governments and raising up the leaders and there's that whole thing about an Egyptian pharaoh there in Romans. I just like this meme. I throw it in here. How do you make everyone in your country happy? Well, you kill everyone that's unhappy. Right? Why does God allow so much suffering? Let's, let's get to my presuppositional arguments here. I think there's nine of them. Number one, some suffering is for God's glory. John 9, 1 through 3. The Jews basically believed that your physical illness was a result of your parents' sin. Justin? What do you think? <laughs> That'd be a negative. But look what it says. Not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Justin Peters shows glory to God every day. I'm so amazed by him. I'm so in awe of him. And he hates me saying that. That's what I love about him too. That's why I said it. Some suffering produces joy. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Hey, don't you love it when the bad thing's over and you're rejoicing the next day? Thank goodness that test is over. No pain, no gain is how we would say it, right? Some suffering produces joy. Some suffering can produce rejoicing. Now I rejoice in who? What is this? Is Paul, right? In my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. In other words, I'm going through this suffering for you. And I bring rejoice that if I'm suffering and that is for the sake of the gospel, then I'll suffer whatever I need to suffer. All suffering works for your good if you love God and are called according to His purpose. Let's finish that verse. It does not say that all things are good. It says it's working. Let me throw this out there. And we know that all things work for those who hate God. All things work together for your damnation for those who aren't according called according to His purpose. That verse is for believers, people. That's a long one and it's small. And you can look it up. Hopefully you got your Bibles. I think this is what Andrew was talking about, endurance and perseverance there and all that problems that came with that. Some suffering produces endurance. What do I mean by that? Look, 
If you've ran a 5K before, which I never have and never will, but I'm quite sure the next time you run it, it won't be so bad. You understand? When you've gone through something and it comes back around, you go, you know what? I made it through last time. I can make it through this time. Hey, brother, I went through the same thing. You can make it. I did. And I know you're stronger than I am. Hey, I know you're weaker than I am, but you know what? I'm going to be there with you and I'm going to help you through this because I got through it this way. You don't go through it alone either. Suffering is gracious in the sight of the Lord, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is the gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice what he says. And suffer for it. The goodness and suffer for it, you endure. It means you go through it. It's gracious in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Again, believers, Christ suffered for you in ways that are unimaginable and for you who were yet sinners, He died for you. Number seven, you're blessed when you suffer. You can go to the Beatitudes and see that. First Peter 4, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Beloved, do not be surprised. You see, that's the thing. Sproul's book, Surprised by Suffering, right? Why? Because they thought this was their best life now. It shouldn't surprise you. Peter tells you that. Jesus said that when you go, right? Hey, Christians, you're going to suffer. You're going to. It's a promise. <laughs> Don't be surprised. That's what Peter's telling us. That's why you need a good, sound theology of suffering. Suffering is just a part of life, people. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Yeah. It's a part of your life as a Christian. It's going to come. And guess what? There are people in your life who are looking at you and they know you're a Christian. And they've gone through things and it was really hard and they're waiting to see. And I, you know, there's some missionary stories that are out there, you know, about how the witch doctors killed the missionaries, you know, poisoned the missionaries and watched how they dealt with the suffering. Don't know if those are true. Let me tell you, people are watching how you suffer as a Christian. Remember, we don't suffer as others. We don't grieve as others as those who have no hope. Understand it's a part of life. You're going to deal with it. Hey, number nine. I'll stop with this premise here. We'll move on to a couple of things. God is in control of suffering from beginning to end. Job 121, Job 210, 
Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I love that. But he said to her, I think it's a King James, but he said to he said, woman, can't get away with that anymore. Right? Woman. One of those foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good and shall we not receive evil? In other words, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In other words, are you going to rejoice and praise God when He gives you this best life now? And then are you going to question Him and argue with Him and fight Him and tell Him that He he's, he's, needs to go away? That if He's really good, if He's really all-knowing, He's really powerful... Why in the world am I having to go through this, God? But, man, I was really happy over here. He is in control. It's one of the things I love about the Reformed faith is the sovereignty of God is at the centerpiece. Knowing that I am not the one steering the boat through the storm. Remember the disciples, they were all there. They're panicking. There's Jesus is asleep. It's not like he hadn't done some amazing things before that storm got there. It, I mean, think about it. When when you look, you look and you see Jesus not so worried, maybe if Jesus had been worried, I would have probably been really worried, right? But he wasn't. He was asleep. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is asleep during your suffering. But what I'm saying is He's not surprised either. He's there with you. We have a friend closer than a brother. We are His friends. We are reconciled. We are made right. We wear His robe of righteousness. He loves you. In the storm, He loves you as you're suffering what's going on in your mother's life or your father's life as they're dealing with cancer. My mother, she had colon surgery last night. God made it through. And I was sitting there going, God, don't really need something else right now. She went went through amazing. But he's in control. So here are my go-to answers. <sighs> Amazing grace, right? I have reason to praise Him for my trials, for most probably I should have been ruined without them. I was bragging have four daughters so I could use that for the reason I suffer but I've had I've I've been blessed with four amazing daughters three of them have, have come to faith in Christ pray for the youngest my number one prayer that I've always prayed for my children is God protect them from the evil one that has been my I said if that's something Jesus prayed for his children I'll pray that for my children Hadn't had any boy problems. 
Wish I'd never said that. The last two months I've dealt with some serious issues with my oldest daughter, not anything she's done, but people who have uh, come after her. And I thank God He did protect her from the evil one because it could have been a lot worse. Now I'm able now to go through that and look back and now I'm have a little compassion and understanding, I guess, in a different area of my life. Sometimes those troubles that come into your life, they're for a reason and a purpose so that you're going to be able to counsel with someone a little bit better. Misanthropy, this is that word that you hear is the big theological word for you. In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? You know the answer to this. Sproul set that straight. There are no good people. It's the easiest, it's the easiest answer. That only happened once and he volunteered. That's the answer. As soon as I, why am I, there's no good people. I'll say that in my group. It's easy. Somebody asks me, why good there's no good people? Look around the room. <laughs> Millard Erickson, he was a theologian. He was one of my professors, main theologians. He said, anyone who would impugn the goodness of God as allowing sin and consequently evil must measure that charge against the teaching of Scripture that God Himself became the victim of evil so that he and we might be victors over evil. He became sin. Who knew no sin. He who was good became evil for us. This was another one. I use this one a lot. So you're willing to get rid of all evil in the world. Yeah, why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? I said, do you believe people are evil? Yes, they're evil people. So what if God killed you? Are you really willing for God to get rid of it? <laughs> they go, well, wait a minute. I'm not so bad. Do we really want Him to get rid of evil? Right, Just snap the finger and evil go? There'll be a lot of people in your life missing tomorrow. Be like Thanos, right? <laughs> Andrew had no clue what that joke was about. So here's the Christian response. Let's, let's follow it up. If God is all-powerful, yes, He can defeat evil. We know that. If God is all-loving and good, He will defeat evil. We do know that. He will defeat it. Therefore, evil will be defeated in God's own time and way. God is sovereign. God is in control. And we know it is the hope. That's why we react and respond differently to evil because of hope. Because there is a day coming, Revelation 21.4, is there not? That He is going to wipe away all of our tears and all the death that we've had endured and those Christian friends of mine who passed away, I will see again. And there will be no mourning, and there will be no more crying, nor there will be any pain, and I will get to dance with Justin, right? 
I don't know. <laughs> right? For the former things are gone. Evil is gone. That's what it's telling us. That is the hope of glory. Hey, and by the way, Revelation 20, look where evil's going. They're going to another place. They're not going to be annihilated. <laughs> they are going to be justly tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where evil's going. So here's the thing. What should we do? First, respond differently than the lost do. Respond differently than the lost do. We as Christians around the world, they want to get rid of us? Good luck when disaster strikes. Your hospital, a lot of your hospitals are going to close. A lot of your orphanages are going to close. A lot of your women's shelters are going to close. A lot of your counseling clinics are going to close. Because we respond differently as Christians. Use your suffering as an opportunity to show empathy. You reach out to those people who are going through things that you have gone through. And this one, show compassion to those who are suffering. Be compassionate. That couple with the two kids that died, it was my first funeral I ever preached. Second funeral I preached was was a man who committed suicide. The third funeral I preached was a man's son who was in prison, who had died in prison, and his daughter, uh, four-year-old daughter, all during the uh, funeral kept saying, where's daddy, where's daddy? Right? But with that first family, I was there with them at their home. I was there with them at the funeral home. I would preach the funeral. I was there with them after. Didn't understand, didn't know why God took their boys. It didn't matter. Didn't matter why God did it. But I knew that I had to be there and show compassion and empathy and love. That's our calling. That's our goal as Christians when we suffer. is to react, respond differently. And when we're going through it, we're riding through the storm, trusting in God's power, His goodness, His love, His knowledge that we're going to make it through. And guess what? Even if we don't, our best life is not now. It's in the future. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your kindness and Your goodness and Your mercy. I pray for Justin as he comes next and uh, he exposits the Scripture. We thank You for that. In Christ's name we pray.